And so without further ado, let's introduce Dr. S. <laughs> Dr. Swamin, you're up. Hi, everybody. Everybody can see him okay? Good, good to see you all. <clears throat> um, and good to see you all at home and uh, here and hanging in there. Um, I was listening to the conversation. It sounds like everybody's finding a way to get to get through this. So nice to see you all. And like um, this is the way of the future. So we'll be we'll be seeing you occasionally, I think. But a lot of it's going to be uh, this way, at least for the next little while. Um, this uh, this is a different time for all of us. You know, it's. Um, there's a lot of soul searching that goes on, a lot of um, thinking about what this means for us, what this means for uh, our society, for the way that we engage with each other, for the way that we uh, stay in touch with each other. And I've been listening to a lot of things that, you know, for us have to do with the Passover Seder coming up. I know that Easter's coming up and people are trying to figure out how to go about celebrating these major milestones in their own faith and do it away from everybody else and in isolation like this. Um, and I think there are lots of lessons that we can try and draw from this, that given, the, given this reality of what we have, um, how, how do we get through? So I think, and then what are the lessons we can draw now about how we handle this, how best can we handle it? How can we stay nimble in trying to respond to all of this? How do we get through it? And then in thinking in the big picture, where do we go from here? What, is this, what does this leave us with later on? What, what, are the, what are the lessons or the experiences that we're, that we're having now that may have um, long-term consequences for how we think about ourselves, our place in our families, our place in society, how we think about our relationships with each other, how we relate to technology, how this may change things for us. So we're in the uh, we're in the COVID era, and there will be a post-COVID era. And I think that, like everybody else who's come to the same conclusion, a lot of things are going to be changing, and let's hope that we can find a way that they'll be changing for the better. But right now, this is a scary time. This is a, a nasty bug. Um, and although not, every, not everybody who gets it gets terribly ill, uh, there are people who are just uh, uh, not doing well at all when they, when they get this, this uh, infection. So um, I can go through some of the, the big picture things in terms of the virus itself. Uh, I can tell you about the hospital, tell you about how we are responding to it. And, and then how this ties into you. What, what I can tell you right now is I'm actually in conversation with my colleagues around the world who are the attacks specialists in their own countries. And we're about to put together a little uh, piece to uh, help our colleagues in, in cerebellar ataxia and neurology deal with the issues that are coming out of their patient populations that we all work with around the world. And so your own input will be very valuable as we, as we knock our ideas into shape. This happened, this started happening yesterday, and we'll get this done within the next day or two. 
uh, one thing that we've learned about it, even in the publication sphere, is that the papers are getting published uh, online almost immediately, which is a big difference from months of delay in getting an academic public paper, uh, paper published for people around the uh, academic community to read and to learn how to handle their applications. Um, from the perspective of, of Mass General, which is what I, I know, we're hearing from our hospital daily, usually twice a day, from the clinical side, from the research side, uh, from the um, uh, partners healthcare, from the medical school. So we're getting emails uh, twice daily. There are uh, Zoom conversations that are taking place across the clinical sphere across the research environment on a weekly basis and hundreds of people log in to hear the updates from the hospital. It's a very impressive uh, effort that they're making. And I think that we're actually very fortunate uh, in an environment like uh, MGH and the Brigham and Partners Healthcare, certainly I can speak for MGH, are pulling together to make sure we don't, make sure we, that they are doing everything they can to avoid the kind of medical care uh, scenarios that have been happening in other places around the country. Uh, they have uh, now been able to secure the personal protective equipment that is critical for the frontline people to wear to be able to take care of patients who are ill. Uh, the hospital has geared up remarkably. They have a number of different sites around the hospital now to see people who think they may be affected. Um, the ICUs are now expanded into other areas. And so they are ready for a surge, which they hope won't happen, but are expecting will happen. And they're expecting it to happen within the next couple of weeks. So from the perspective of the hospital preparedness for this, I've been very impressed by just how effective they've been and also very open in communicating with the people on the medical uh, and affiliated faculty to really get on top of this. And they've been very careful to make sure that it's not only the, the care providers on the front lines that you see, but also the people behind the scenes who make the place run, who are also being cared for. This includes people who are providing food in the cafeterias and keeping the hospital meticulously clean. And so everybody around the entire, envi entire environment is pulled into this as a way to, to stay on top of it. A guy like me and people who in my position um, who are not actively on the front lines in patient care in the, in the ICUs or in the clinical uh, front seeing the COVID patients, some are being pulled in to help. Uh, but for the rest of us, there's all the rest of the hospitals still to take care of. So we have moved our uh, practice off-site. I'm at home, and those of you who've seen me on the virtual visits, I'm sitting in my study, and this has now become my, my uh, little world over here, taking care of patients. Um, I was talking about the virtual visits. What, what, we, what we're doing is the physicians who aren't actually in the hospital um, have been sent home. So basically, the entire workforce has been sent home, except for those who, who absolutely have to be there on site to take care of people who have the virus. There are many reasons for this. One is they need to make sure that we're all safe because if the, if the doctors and nurses all start having to quarantine themselves, 
they've got no one to take care of their patients. So it's a critical need to maintain the safety of the caregiving faculty and everybody else because we're in this for the long run. That's number one. Number two is there's everybody else the hospital takes care of. All you folks who are, thank heavens, unless you have what remains that way, are, are COVID-free. Uh, but you're still part of our uh, community of, of uh, patient-doctor interactions, and we need to be there for you. And so we've moved onto this virtual platform, which itself has its issues. We all have to learn how to navigate the virtual uh, reality, the online platform. We have to make sure that um, we all have the technology that's necessary for that. Sometimes you use a telephone because not everybody is, has a computer or has a camera so we can see you. But in those circumstances where we have this, either your phone or your computer or laptop, uh, we can do the virtual visit, which means we're here for you. And we can take care of questions about medications or changes in your, in your uh, symptoms over time or answer the questions that you have or assess how you're doing. So just in the last week, I've prescribed new medications, uh, suggested new kind of therapies, altered medications, changed doses based on the interaction over the computer. And what this, what this has taught us, which is where this can go for the long run, is that it may in fact be possible for folks for whom it's difficult to come in. It's a long distance or getting in is a big problem because of the wheelchair involved or someone's going to take time off of work. It may be that a, a good upside of all of this, the real trouble, is that we'll be able to see you more regularly um, and without as much trouble to address all the issues we need to through this platform of the virtual visit. So tele, telemedicine is, is now reality. And I think we're learning, and I've learned, as you have learned, those who work with us so far, uh, that this, in fact, does work. And it's uh, less burdensome to come in. We still need to see you. <laughs> this doesn't replace that. But it may be that we can intersperse an in-person visit with an online visit like this through the, through the video platform where we can see you, we can hear you speak, we can hear your concerns, we can do some of, you know, sort of finger-to-nose testing and rapid tapping of the finger, even walking around the apartment. Much of this we can do just to assess how things are moving along, even through the platform of the video conference. And so that's, uh, that's where this has gone. Um, there are some issues, and I'll, I'll just tell you some things that have occurred to me, and I'd love to hear your own comments and feedback. There are some issues that are, are directly relevant. Now, one of the questions that's come up is, are people who have ataxia at higher risk of getting the complications if you were to get the virus? Uh, the big picture is this. People who are above the age of 60 tend to have a higher risk, and the risk is greater in the 70s and even higher in the 80s. So age is a major risk factor from age of 60 upwards. But that doesn't let everybody younger off the hook. So firstly, that's number one. Number two is the things that, that raise your risk are heart disease, uh, diabetes, hypertension, uh, previous smoking, and immunological compromise. Now, immunological compromise includes people who are taking prednisone or Celsept or rituximab or the medications for immune treatment of the disease. Uh, but also some folks may have uh, lupus or multiple sclerosis or myasthenia or associated conditions, and all of that raises the risk because that's an immune-compromised situation. Um, but cardiac disease may occur with some of the ataxias. Um, some people are smokers. 
All of these things uh, cause more trouble if the virus hits. And that's unrelated to the attacks here. Our concern for the Antarctic patient population is that given that there's a neuromuscular problem, where there's a control of respiration and the swallowing mechanism sometimes gets affected in ataxia. These are things that place one at greater risk of airway maintenance, airway protection in this disease that primarily gets the pulmonary, that gets the, the pulmonary system, the lungs. Um, the common symptoms and, uh, and, and signs that you probably have already heard are things like a cough, fever and cough and a shortness of breath, but uh, it can also have other manifestations. We're learning now that uh, fatigue is a big problem, uh, maybe muscle weakness. Uh, some people occasionally, there are some neurological things, of confusion, even seizures and stroke in some people and encephalitis. That's a rare complication, but we're recognizing that maybe actually part of the neurology of, of, this, of this virus. So those are the things that are relevant to ataxia people in terms of number one, uh, what the risks are if one were to get the virus in terms of the risk of getting it um, and the greater complications unrelated to ataxia. And the second is a symptom that you may have worsen even because of the ataxia. The fact that there's a neurological condition that makes things worse. That makes it all the more critical to not get the bug. And not getting the bug, uh, you know all about because you've heard this as we all have, but there are a couple of things that I'd love to hear your own comments about this, how this may affect you. So things like uh, um, staying at home and social distancing and frequently washing your hands and not touching your face when you be up unless you wash your hands, um, not, uh, being any, not being near people who are coughing and making sure they, they cover their mouth. Uh, or wearing a mask when now wearing a mask when you when you leave the house. Uh, these are all ways to make sure you don't get infected. Cleaning things when they come in the house. Something comes in the house, you, you bring it in, you put it in the basement, you let it stay there, you bring it up, you wash your hands. All the things that you're all reading about, these are, are important ways to remain infection free. The other part of this though is um, because you're living people are not living on their own. This, I, what concerns me is that the access to the care that was part and parcel of your everyday life becomes disrupted. How do you get to see physical therapy or speech therapy or occupational therapy? What if you have a caregiver coming in to take care of you? Can they come in and see you? Have somebody who gets a, a blood test for the COVID level they're on, they come to the house once a month. Is that a safe thing to do? Um, what about going to the lab to get labs drawn on a regular basis? And if, you're, if you're on Riluzol, for example, and you get your blood drawn once a month, is that something that one can do? These are all very practical knock-on effects of staying home in social isolation. Now, we don't know how long this is going on for. If this is a matter of another month or six weeks, you know, we can probably get around that. But we are, nobody knows. They can they not, not able to tell us this. Um, and so that's, that's part of the concern. So those are some of the things that, that we're, we're having, that we're hearing about and are, um, are needing to think about. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, just as an opener, uh, and then uh, be available to ask, answer any questions to the best of my ability.
uh, given what we have. And uh, uh, all the other trouble, the stuff that Jeanette was referring to, uh, getting furloughed or losing a job, and all this, the, the psychological trauma and the emotional uh, trauma and the, and the financial hit, all of these things are, are very real. And uh, this is a, a very tough time to, or to go through. And one of the ways to get through it is exactly what we're doing now, is to maintain community and keep the communication, keep the connection, um, you know, hold strong, try and keep an even keel and, and, and move forward. There's a lot more that I can, I can share about in terms of what's going on in the background, but let me, let me stop there, uh, Dana and John, and, and, uh, if there are, and whatever questions there are or people want to chat about, topics you'd like to raise, I'll see if I can help them. Yeah, Jeremy, um, we did have a question regarding, do we know any patients with ataxia that have tested positive for corona? And if so, how are they doing? So we are, there's no data, uh, as far as I know, on ataxia specifically. So when I talk about the, what I think may be higher, uh, higher potential for risk, that's on first principles. There's no published evidence I know of of the ataxia patient population specifically with, with the COVID, um, except in as much as the, the general rules of age and the comorbidities of heart, uh, lung disease, and hypertension. So beyond that, uh, we actually don't know. But um, uh, there, are, there are issues that are specific to the kind of problems that the ataxia community is facing that we know are additional burdens. I mean, you wouldn't think to, you wouldn't think to say, uh, you know, I'm not able to see my physical therapist. That's a that's a that's a downside of being stuck at home. And yet, that is a downside of being stuck at home. And that's part of part and parcel of your ongoing management. So that's beyond that, we actually don't know. So it's from first principles that we can say we're concerned that there may be a, a more troublesome outcome uh, should should somebody get infected purely on the basis of the ataxia itself, unrelated to a heart issue or age or other risk factors. Okay. Oh, I just had a question, doctor. I heard you mention that if you were on Rillia's law, you should have a regular blood check. Is that, did I hear you correctly? It's not regular all the time, but with some, if someone has begun Rillizol, we'll do it, uh, we'll check out a month and then two months, then maybe it's every six months or a year thereafter. So it's not a, regu not a regular thing, but just to keep an eye on things over time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Any, anybody else that has a question, other questions? Okay, Lori, we're going to Lori. Go ahead, Lori. Okay, Dr. Schwarman. I stopped taking the Rillizol because it was too expensive. I'm not seeing much of a difference. I've been off it for about a month. So that's an interesting point. And I'll tell you where things stand with Rillizol. We know that Rillizol in the studies in Italy seemed to make a difference to the people who were taking it in two separate studies over the long run. The drug trial of Prorizol is a different formulation. It's a once a day, similar kind of mechanism because it metabolizes into Rizol. And the idea behind the study is, does it really work? And we don't know whether it uh, works over the long run or not. And the point is, it's conceivable that you may not notice much of a difference once you're on it, 
But if you, I'll just I'll use my hand. So if you're in a, in a group of people who are taking the medication and you stay the same as, as you were, so you were, if you're not noticing any difference, if there's another a second group who was not taking the medication, would they tend to decline over time? So at the end of a point, in, at the end of a year or two, is there a difference in the two groups, the Rilizol group and the non-Rilizol group? Are they the same or are they different? And that's what the trial is about. Do we see the difference over the long run? So it's, it's quite uh, understandable that you may not have seen a difference. And there could be two reasons. One is it doesn't do anything. But two, uh, it, may, you, it may not produce any identifiable improvement in some people, or in others it does. But if it doesn't produce an identifiable improvement over the long run, would it keep you steady compared to somebody who wasn't on it? So that's the idea behind the clinical trial and the reason that we're using Rilizol. Which gets me to the clinical trial discussion. What this has done, this whole staying at home thing, uh, and exactly the concern that I think you've raised, I think the hospital is, you know, it's not a healing place necessarily. That's where, the, that's where all, the, all the sick people go. Uh, is the clinical trials have come to a screeching halt. And the, the Biohaven trial for Trorilizol, uh, the Biohaven trial for multiple system atrophy, and the new one that Caden was going to be starting sometime soon are all on hold. We're not bringing in any new people into the study. And those who are already on it, we're doing virtual visits just to check in and make sure they're okay. But we're not actually doing the evaluations on the computer of the motor impairment. The reason for that is kind of, kind of clever, actually. The, the, the fellows who are running the study said, if we use the computer as our, as our, as our examination portal and we get a data point, the FDA is going to say, we're going to use that data point. But the question is, what if that data point isn't as accurate as an in-person evaluation? Now you have an inaccurate data point, and the drug company's on the hook for that. So, and we agree with that, because you want to know that the drug is either working or not. You don't want to get faked out by a change of in-person exam to a computer exam. And since we don't know that, what they have decided to do is to make sure that we know that you're okay. Um, so some of you who are on the, study, on the drug studies will stay in contact with the study team, but it's mostly to make sure that you're okay, uh, you can have bloods drawn at the local lab if necessary, or defer that if necessary. And the hope is that this will go away at some point relatively soon, we'll be able to get back in, on, on track with the studies, or at least do it in such a way that we're not gonna be placing at risk to have you come and see us, or have us see you. It's a, you know, everybody could be a, a, a asymptomatic carrier. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. And the other one, the Caden study is on hold now. That was a new drug to try and make a taxi better. They can't initiate that because to start the study, you have to have an in-person visit with the person who's actually gonna be taking the medication. So that's on hold for the moment. I think that when we get a test, that will allow us to know within a matter of minutes, five minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever, whether you actually have the virus or you've had antibodies to the virus, that would be a total game changer. Because, and this applies to people coming into your home as caregivers. So all the fuss about the testing, I think is for a good reason. When we know that somebody can be proven to have not, to not have the infection, that person can come in the house and take care of you. 
will help out with you or provide physical therapy or whatever else it is. But in the absence of that, the fear of the about 25% incidence of asymptomatic carriers or people who can spread the infection five days before they even know they have anything wrong with them, that's the major fear. And uh, this thing spreads like wildfire. So one person can infect a minimum of three people and then goes on, that's what goes on from there. That's why it's this exponential rise. One person doesn't infect one person. One person can infect an average of three people. And as we know from the Biogen conference downtown at the Marriott Longwolf, there are three people who infected 70 or 90 people. It was a ridiculous number of people who got infected. And that's the concern. And that's why they're all keeping us basically sheltering in place. But I think that the ability to test will change a lot of this. Dr. Schwaman, before you joined the call this afternoon, we went around and we had everyone introduce themselves and pose a question that you know was top of mind for them in terms of the COVID-19 uh, dilemma. And so I'd like to go through a couple of those with you and um, let you know who asked those questions so you can address that person and that person can ask a follow-up if they need to. So um, one of the questions was, um, and I think we've, I think this has not been discussed yet, is if something happens to a child that has ataxia, um, how can that child be seen by you without taking the child to MGH? And I think the answer might be virtually. It's virtual visits. We're moving to the virtual visit platform. So I think this, 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 there's very little that cannot be accomplished in the long-term care of a person with an illness that cannot be done through the virtual visit. If there's an acute, if there's an acute illness, you have to go to the hospital. Um, if there is a, a concern for actually getting COVID, you have to call your primary care doc. Do not go to the hospital. You call the primary care doc and the doc then organize based on your symptoms whether he or she thinks that it's more likely than not that you may in fact have the virus and then arrange for the testing. So, but for regular routine care, we're moving to the virtual visit platform. And for those of you who've been in, maybe you can talk with the others about that, what your experience was, how it works for you, um, what the upside, the downside, all the rest of it. That's going to be a, a, the way of the future. You know, I have patients who fly in from all over the world to see me. And that's okay for me to get to know them the first time out. But they literally fly from China, from Hawaii, from Taiwan. They come from South America. The question here is, is that really necessary on a six-month basis or an annual basis? Or even coming in, you know, the folks who are down in Fort River and New Bedford, coming into Boston as if you go, it's like you're flying from China to, to Boston. It's the traffic when there's normally traffic and the parking, and it's just such a complete hassle. So the question, and then you have to get a caregiver and you've got to get someone to take the day off of work. You know, the we can, because this allows us to ask questions that we didn't really need to ask before. And I think gives us answers that we didn't have before. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they make, and the knock-on effect could potentially, there are good lessons to come out of this. You know, when they talk about the fish coming back in the canals of Venice or the air in Boston being cleaner because the pollution's down, 
uh, or the savings on on the environment with all the spewing of the the, the uh, gasoline and the environment for the airplanes. There is a way to rethink this, and I think that we're so optimistic by nature. Otherwise, what's the point of getting out of bed? Um, you know, with something as as catastrophic as this is, what are the lessons we can learn from it to to better? our society and i think that one little way in our environment here is for us to have access to each other through these kind of platforms the technology is extraordinary I and mean, we look at what we're doing now we're all in different places around the country we're all chatting real time and we can we can engage and we can interact and and be able to see each other breaks through in a sense with the with the face there the face the visual is so important in terms of being able to see somebody and connect with them and then get the get the, the non-verbal cues of the interaction. All of that, I think we can, we can get with the technology, at least you know, as good as it is at the moment. Um, so, so we, can take, we can do this over the long run. This will, this will be a change in our practice, I think, long run. So Jeremy, if someone were to have an upcoming appointment with you, um, how would they go about scheduling a virtual appointment? If they called the ataxia unit, is there someone there answering phones? Like, how do, how do they schedule this? You don't have to. It's going to be what you we, we, will, we, will, we will send you an email saying, if, do you want to do it by phone or by Zoom? So every, it's all gone. There are no, no one's coming to the hospital. There are no appointments. Okay. Like there's nobody there. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's home. <laughs> They're all right. So all of the appointments are virtual. They're either going to be like a Zoom like this, or those who don't have it will be doing it by the phone. So every the, the, so I did a you know I'm sitting at home. I I'd be working harder at home than I work at normally. I agree. <laughs> so have I. I can't take it. <laughs> Um, you know, it just saves me the commute so I can take the dog for a walk in the morning. It's nice. Um, the, uh, it, we haven't changed our schedule at all. In fact, what's interesting is I'm, I don't keep anybody waiting anymore. Everybody's on time. <laughs> um, you know when the appointment, you've got your clock, you know when the appointment starts, you know when it ends. And we end on time because someone's waiting on the computer. So it's actually been very efficient. We start on time, we end on time, we know exactly how much time we have, we can take care of what we need to. Um, and then we can set the agenda for where we need to go. We also, because we can do it in such a, a, a low kind of time intensive thing with getting in the hospital and me having to organize my clinics around things, uh, we could see it, we can, we can add on this if we need to. It actually is a transformative approach to healthcare, it's sort of like the doctor. It's like a, it's like a, um, the old patient, you know, uh, house call, except we're doing it through the computer. Yeah, no, that's and very true. Yeah. Denise, you had your hand up. Wait, are we able to ask a follow? Yep, go ahead, Randy. So, Jeremy, if we have an appointment scheduled out for October, do we have to do anything differently? And are these appointments being built to insurance the same way? Yeah, so they've, they've, everybody's recognized that, we have, that the, the model has changed. It literally is. You know, when I say the world is different than it was a month ago, this is a prime example. All the fuss and the feedback that you were getting for, for the 
the, the, the virtual business like this, that's just melted away. It's like, this is what it is, deal with it. Insurance companies, deal with it. Okay, this is what this is. And, and it's already and it's happened. So we don't know what's gonna happen in October. You may decide in October that you would like to do a virtual business as opposed to covering. So at some point it'll become a choice thing uh, or it may be that, it's, you know, it's, I don't know if we're at this point, but you almost need to have a reason to come in as opposed to doing all the virtual business. Let's see where that goes. We don't know. That's all up. The, the word that describes us best is fluid. When we get emails from the hospital, they say, the information we're sending you is valid as of April 5th, 2020 at 5.02 p.m. <laughs> Literally, because at 6 p.m. it could be different. <laughs> so, <laughs> because we don't know. So much has changed. I can, I can agree with you there, working with the hospital. I, as soon as I have a plan, it changes within three hours, and it just constantly changes. So I, I, I do understand that. This is what I was talking about up, up front. The, the issues that our intensive patients have, and I don't, we don't have any data at all. This is all from... First, knowing about the virus, knowing about ataxia, knowing about the issues that our ataxia community is experiencing. Uh, so this is this is it's not it's not data free completely, but it's it, there's nobody nobody we know of has gone through this, thankfully, and hopefully it'll stay that way. But here's here's the reality: is that this disease goes for the lungs. That's its first target. And it, and it really does a number on the lungs. And then everything knocks on from there. And because in ataxias, there is the issue of control of respiration and the strength of the body in fighting off these issues and the trouble with, with, with the aspiration pneumonia later in the course, uh, I think that it is quite reasonable to believe that there is a higher risk of the problems in people who have the different forms of ataxia. So yes, I would regard this as a high risk. And in the letters I've written for people, uh, before everybody was confined to the house and they were wondering about airplane reservations and cruises and those things when they were still going on, I was very happy to write letters saying, look, this person is at high risk, you need to let them off the hook. Now, of course, that's all gone by the wayside, but the, the point remains the same. So yes, I think that for for folks in the ataxia community, you need to be extra special careful to not get the virus. So your primary responsibility is to not get the bug. And that's where all the preventive measures come in. And so I'll take this really, really seriously. It's all the hand washing. It's uh, so if you're so if you're at home, you haven't gone anywhere for the last couple, you're home. So where does the risk come into you? Because you know, if you, you haven't had the bug so far in your home, you're not going to get it. So how could you get it? Social distancing. You're going to get it from people. So this is a zoonotic. It came from the animals, but then it got transmitted person to person. And so and let me say it again because it matters. A person who doesn't have symptoms but has the virus could still pass it on. So the way that you, the way that you can get this virus is either from a person who has a virus, whether or not they know it, or touching surfaces that have the virus on it, or breathing in the air of somebody who was just there a few minutes ago. Because with these, they talk about droplets and aerosol. Droplets are small uh, 
collections of the particles that drop, drop down onto a surface and stay there for a period of time. That period of time can be a day to a few days. So door handles, surfaces, the trolley cart, something in the store if you go to, those are all potentially infectious. Uh, I've heard two ways to think about this. One of them was like there's glitter everywhere. You have to avoid the glitter. Or, or my brother said a red dust. Just imagine a red dust everywhere. You need to, that's what you're trying to stay away from. So where is that glitter or that dust? It's on surfaces outside the house. So somebody who comes into the house who may not be infected could have touched that and then bring it into the house and, the, and that virus is on their hands and now in your home. So that's the that's the key is not to get the not to get this beast into your house if you if you're tucked away at home. How does that how do you get exposure to the beast? Uh, stuff coming into the house that's got the virus on it. People who are coming into the house who touch surfaces. So the the hygiene becomes absolutely key. Thankfully, thank heavens, soap destroys the virus. You think, well, how, why can they just stick soap into your veins? Wouldn't that be nice? It, it doesn't work like that. We, we, we need the equivalent of soap to stick into the veins. But outside of that, what the soap does is it, it attacks the lining of the, of the virus and then opens it up and the thing just gets destroyed. So that's why soap. And then the, uh, for the hand sanitizer, if you can get any, uh, does a similar thing. So that's why the no hands on your face, washing your hands all the time, 20 seconds. You've seen videos. If you haven't, you have to wash the hands, you have to wash the thumbs, wash the fingers, wash the back of the hands, wash the front, make sure you're washing the hands, this, this part, you have the hands, and doing it for 20 seconds, all the way up to the wrists, like that, all the way around for 20 seconds washing, then you wash your hands off, and then you, then you rinse off the faucet. And you're doing that multiple times a day. What I would suggest is have a, a bottle of, of hand cream so you don't get chapped hands by the time you're done because you literally are washing your hands a number of times throughout the day. You're becoming obsessive compulsive on purpose. It's a purposeful obsessive compulsive disorder about hand washing. And the reason is because your hands are the conveyors of the stuff into your mouth and your eyes and your nose. And that's how you get the bug. There is apparently another way as well, which also speaks to hand washing, is this also affects the GI tract. And if someone doesn't clean themselves properly after going to the bathroom, you can somehow get, you can get the bug that way as well. So these are the critical reasons for hand washing, for using the bleach or whatever to wipe down surfaces. Um, and people who come into the house need to not bring the bug in. That's... So I'm, I'm emphasizing this to me on purpose because this is this is the key. You're already doing isolation. You're not doing you're not doing social distancing of six feet. You're staying home. So that's the biggest thing you can do. You're doing it already you're doing it yourself um, and to society. Okay, by not getting it and not passing it on. So staying home is is a huge part of this. That's why there's no cars in the street. Why the why the economy is tanked. Staying home is key. But when you're home, how could you get it? For those of you going out to the shopping or someone coming in with the shopping, this, you have to be absolutely scrupulous about this. Even changing clothes. So the doctors who come home, the doctors aren't coming home. The doctors in the hospital are staying in hotels or they're staying somewhere or they're not coming home. 
uh, or those who do, uh, they're uh, coming home and they're leaving all the clothes in the basement and sticking it somewhere and putting them in the wash, going to have a shower and then coming back just to, to make sure that this dust gets washed off of you. That's how you should think about this. Invisible, but think of it as dust. I think, Donak, did you have a question, Donak Azola? I think you're muting and she's trying to unmute. Okay. Yeah, just putting regular soap works, so does it need to be in separate soap? Regular soap will do it. It's the it's the action of the soap in attacking the um, uh, the, the the fat soluble aspect of the uh, of the virus. The soap breaks it apart. It works. Any soap will do it. They said it should be soap that has a lava to it. I don't, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know about the science behind that. But a soap thing that when you're washing, when you're washing your hands, you get a nice, a nice lava with the soap. That's what you, what you're looking for. Okay, Lauren, you got a question? No. Lauren, well, Lauren, you asked a question earlier when we about the chime model versus other models and why the states are using different or cities are using one over the other. I don't know if Dr. S, you have any insight into that. You know, I don't. I think that uh, the, these are all different mathematical models people are using. But what we there are a couple of facts that drive this. The one is that the the uh, in, the infection uh, rate from one person to another is on average one to one person infects three people, and that's why you get this exponential growth. And it could be as many as fifty or sixty in these super spreaders. Uh, we know that it takes around five to seven days to actually get sick. We know you can you can infect someone before you you can infect somebody else five days before you five days before you show symptoms. You can be spreading the virus. So um, that's the kind of information that they're feeding into their models. That it depends on what the movement of the population is, how dense the population is, what kind of uh, society. Uh, configuration there is in terms of a city or a town. These are all the complex issues that go into building a model, which I don't really understand. But what they do know for sure is that the um, the the, pre the the numbers we have today reflect what happened two weeks ago. No. That's an interesting fact. No. What we know, what they say, these the model. This is the numbers for today. What's happening today is what happened two weeks ago in terms of spreading. So you can imagine the reason that they're worried about this wave is that in the last two weeks, all these people have been out there infecting three other people in this exponential rise. And that's the concern. That's why they're saying, oh my God, something's about to happen because our numbers now are two weeks ago numbers. There's been a lot of spreading going on in that two weeks, so they think the numbers are going to look like that. And the problem is that the medical system can only handle so many people because there's only so many doctors and beds and ICU beds and ventilators. That's the issue. Okay. Yeah. Other questions? Okay, Lori Shogren, we're going to go to Lori. Oh. One thing that we have been hearing about is um, some anxiety from folks um, if they do get it, if a family member gets it, or for 
any other reason they do have to go to a medical center, having that separation um, between family members. Um, and what is your advice on maybe preparing for that type of situation within families? Good question. It's perhaps one of the most heartbreaking pieces of all of this. Uh, in addition to all the trouble that we're going through, you know, I can't see, I can't see my family. Uh, you know, my wife is here, Jenny's here, thank God. You know, we've got our, you know, we've got our little nuclear family, just as us. Um, but the people who go through this on their own, with nobody else there, and that's hard. Uh, but those who are in families, um, even now, before we get to the next stage, you can't see, you know, I can't see my son who lives downtown, my brother's around the corner, I can't see him. Uh, we all have the big family you know, celebrations coming up with Easter and Passover, we can't do that. Um, grandparents can't see their grandkids. Uh, people can't see their parents in the nursing homes or the, or the senior living centers. This is heartbreaking. And it's even more heartbreaking when someone goes in the hospital. And the doctors are now really feeling this because one of the things that, that, that doctors, nurses, uh, all the caregivers do is when people go through tough times, and you know, we're, we're God's agents, we're not God, people pass. But what we can do is try and be there and facilitate that and work with families and allow the passing to be one that is remembered as being gentle and meaningful and love filled. And, people transition to the other side and poof that's all gone because if you can't be in the hospital people are dying on their own i have no words for that none of us do it's it's just horrible so i i don't I, there's nothing to be said about that except that it's just one of the most awful family psychological emotional downsides of all this problem and therefore don't get the bite I mean, the, the more horrible, the more horror stories you hear, and there are, the more it, the more it speaks to us like, stay home, <laughs> number one, <laughs> don't get the bug, and secondly, uh, do what you can to prevent getting it. But not everybody can do that. So in the environment where families are separated, someone goes into the hospital. Here, I think you have to try and maintain contact through phone or, uh, uh, you know, um, be in touch with the nursing staff if they can talk with you about what's happening. But I think that there's no ready fix for this. This is, they're dealing with a, a medical system that is, is really, uh, in some cases, uh, breaking apart at the seams and doing its very best to stay holding itself together. Uh, but you do have very committed caregivers on the front lines who will do what they can, recognizing the pain that family members and patients are going through when they're separated from each other. And you can't be there by the bedside to bring down a glass of water if you needs one, or to hold her hand if, if, if mom needs that. Uh, all the things that we do normally, naturally, as as, as uh, people taking care of our loved ones. So these are these are the harsh realities of this terrible pandemic. Uh, a very much on the ground kind of kind of issues that we have to deal with. So I don't have an easy answer for that, the, the separation between family members, except that if someone's in a, in a senior center and you can't see them, you've seen pictures of people going by and holding signs, I love you, and doing it from outside the window, and just maintain that contact 
I think maintaining contact if someone's healthy but separated, using the virtual reality. If somebody's in the nursing home and doesn't have full cognitive capacity, which, which occurs often, obviously, um, finding ways to try and maintain the contact. I, I was reading a paper this morning that the, the people who have developmental disabilities, who are in these group living situations, who are now not able to see the family members who would come and see them on a daily basis. That's heartbreaking. And, and everybody has to find some way to, uh, to maintain a sense of the personal contact even if it's not actually in-person contact. So, I wanted to rephrase Laurie's question. I thought that was a good point, but the point that I want to ask is, uh, say there's three of us in one house and none of us are affected. All of a sudden we find out one of our kids or somebody might be infected. What is the best way, or if that situation happened, is there a way to isolate the house? The uh, they, they, somebody in the house, one person in the house. Yeah. Right. Uh, there, I read some things about that. Uh, yes. So here, uh, um, it's a separate room. Uh, washing clothes, washing hands, trying to keep a deep, this is now a social distancing within the house right. as much as you possibly can. Okay, okay. Not okay. eating off the same plates, just they're really try, trying to keep things within the same household as much as you can, keep it separate. You know, one, one thing that we're taking for granted here, and, and I think that uh, everybody in the call is, is in that sense um, okay from this regard, but if there are people who who don't have their own different rooms in the house, or or uh, are living many members of a house to a to a small many members of family to a small house, well, our hearts go out to them because there the risk of, of cross infection is going to be even higher. So these are all the realities of a situation like this, and and to sugarcoat it is to is to be ignorant, but to recognize that is is important and then you know the thing that you all know better than i is that you're going through something hard but then you look over the person next to you and say oh my god it could even be worse and i think that's that's the kind of situation that we're faced with is that as bad as it is it, it could even be worse in some circumstances uh, but so if you have the space in the house you want to do everything you can to maintain the social distancing to be washing clothes washing hands washing surfaces completely obsessive about that to try and keep yourself healthy as much as you can. Dr. Schwaman, um, it's curious to me, like I'm wondering, I've heard of some cases where someone has contracted coronavirus and then they've gone through their two-week cycle and um, go to donate like plasma or blood and at that point are retested again and sh are still showing positive. Have you any data on that? So I don't know the ins and outs to that, but I think people are working on, here's what I know, is that they regard you as having been negative if you tested negative twice, and I think it's over like two or three days. So you're no longer, you're no longer infected if, you're, if your test for the infection is negative two tests over a period of time following the quarantine. Uh, what they're moving to now is to develop the test for the antibodies that you developed in your system to have overcome the infection and not died from it. 
So they're working on that as well. So the combination of the, the test for the infection itself and the test for the antibodies to the infection are where, the, are where this is going to, uh, going to come down to. Okay. Um, we have been getting together with my son and our daughter-in-law and my mother by gathering on a nice day in my mom's backyard and staying well apart, but having a conversation at least. Is that safe? I think the answer now is no. Okay. The answer is no. You know, we were talking about this ourselves. I'd love to go and see our son is done. We'd love to go see our son. Um, we'd love to uh, go see friends and family. Uh, and I think that the answer is that we just should not do it. Um, the, uh, the risk is just too high. Now, the, so, so here's where the uncertainty is. Okay, everybody's been in quarantine for two weeks. You say, well, I've been in quarantine for two weeks. I'm fine. They've been fine. Um, isn't that enough? The, the, uh, the, the rationale to say, no, that's not enough, would be to say, well, they're fine. But three days ago, they went to the post office right. and they came back and they're fine. But three days ago, did they pick up the bug somehow three days ago in the post office? So you don't know that. And that's what's going on. And so that's, it's sort of the extreme and we're all stuck with it. Uh, but the idea behind this, and the, I, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know that it's not my own, my own work. So I'm, I'm sharing with you what, I, what I'm reading myself about the epidemiologists telling us to please be careful. Yeah. And I think that sitting in the backyard and chatting seems to be okay, but it may not be because if people are out in, for example, in Newton, as they have now in Boston, they've, they've put, they've, they've put bars over the the uh, uh, the nets in the basketball in the basketball right, right. Uh, and they've put bars on benches that don't sit here don't be here because if you're not playing you know uh, basketball but I'm not touching well you know it's you're not it's, you're pretty close uh, close proximity but now you've touched the basketball that somebody else touched and maybe the bugs on the basketball dust everywhere invisible dust uh, the only way to not land up dying in a hospital alone god forbid is to not get the bug yeah. it's that it's that serious when you see our uh, there's a um we've had to all learn about this i spent two hours today watching very detailed videos online about what's the exact physiology of what goes on i said what what is, why are people dying like this what's going on and you see the physiology of this, the, how, how this bug affects a specific cell in the lung that then causes a cascade of mischief that is unrecoverable. And then it gets the blood vessels, and it gets the heart, and then the kidneys, and the liver, and then the whole system shuts down. That's, that's why they're dying six, seven, eight hundred a day in New York. Once it, once it runs away like a wild train, there's nothing they can do. It's just a catastrophe. There's nothing that we can do except be there for moral support. And even then, insult to injury, 
family can't be there. So this is just awful. For those who don't get any symptoms or side effects, thank you know, God bless them, that's great. But those who are dying is a catastrophe, and those who are not dying are probably not getting away scot-free. Because the damage this does to the lungs may not necessarily be completely reversible. And if there's seizures or encephalitis or other kinds of things, or heart damage to this or kidney damage to this as occurs, is it completely reversible? We don't know. Um, I don't believe the data coming out of China. Uh, they're not honest. Uh, I don't believe 2,000 people died in Wuhan when they've had 10,000 die in Italy. I don't believe it. Um, and nor should anybody else. So we know the data come from China, from, from Italy, and from Spain is a catastrophe. New York is a disaster. Uh, and, and they've done social distancing. So we don't know. The There's a lot of data coming out of China, and it's been very helpful but for, from the physicians. But the actual numbers, that's the government, and they're not to be trusted. So um, we don't know what the long-term potential consequences are. And all of that is, the reason I'm going on this tirade is, is it worth it to sit in the backyard for a couple hours and chat? And I think the answer is Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So, you know, it's reaching that 5.30 mark. I know you probably have a lot going on, Dr. Solomon. So I just wanted to end with two different things where we are not showing any more questions through the uh, chat. One is that I wanted to, you know, we listen to all this and it can be depressing and anxiety builds. And I found that a lot of people spend way too much time on social media reading so much uh, false data. And now in today's world, we have 24 hours news. It's on all day. I mean, we actually have live uh, clickers that some of the stations have of how many deaths are having. I don't see what the point of that is. I, I get the, the importance of it. And I just think that people sometimes just need to, to ration out the time that they spend getting news and information. I think it's very powerful. But then to also spend time with family, just watching movies and getting your mind off of it makes you also uh, healthier. Anxiety and depression is a is going to be the next big problem that we're going to face in in society. I couldn't I agree with you more. I think that's totally right. I would, um, you know, we've stopped. We pretty much stopped watching the news here. I'm I. I get the updates from the hospital all the time. Um, and I, I'm, I'm reading stuff so I can stay abreast because I, I need to know this stuff. Uh, but I you, uh, listen to occasional, um, occasional briefings now and again. But uh, you, I, I think that taking care of one's own emotional well-being is an important part of this. Uh, you know, Jenny found a wonderful movie we watched last night called Yesterday. If anyone already seen it, it's a wonderful movie, uplifting movie called Yesterday. It's about the Beatles. You know, find find uplifting things to to watch, uh, to see, to talk about, and in a sense, try and 
try and make lemonade out of this lemon. <laughs> At home, uh, reconnect with family, you know, be thankful you get to spend time with the dog. Uh, the, the things that, or, or do some reading that you wanted to do that you haven't had time to, pick up a good book. Uh, if you can get out, go for walks, watch out for people who are out there, wear a mask. You can wear a mask now, um, out in public so you don't, nobody breathes on you. Just stay away from folks if you need to. Um, most of our ataxia folks are still able to get up and, and out either in, a, in, a, in your chair or for a walk. Uh, try and get outside, enjoy the weather as it gets nicer, doing it with only members in your own family, staying away across the street if necessary, stay away from other people. And then try and see if possible um, some of the this, this spirituality that comes out of the, uh, the communities coming together. I think the faith communities can be very helpful. I'll just tell you from, from our story and you can you can align this to yourselves whatever your own faith community is you know um the the churches and synagogues have shut down the only people who go there are the clergy nobody else can go so in our, in our uh, sub synagogue they, they have they have a zoom service every day um and they connect with us we connect with them and and the rabbi gives little sermons about you know tying into um uh, what this could mean in terms of spirituality and what this means in terms of humanity and community. And, and you all have the same things in your own communities. And that's something that speaks to you, I would tap into that. Or, or the community of the ataxia people, reaching out to family and friends and, and talking to people. And you realize something that's interesting is you realize who's important to you and now you know who you're missing. Uh, so I, I agree with you completely, John. I think you want to try and not wallow in this, but recognize just how grave it is, and then do what, what people have always done, which is reach down into our human strength and spirit and find, find a better way through, find, find, find the, uh, uh, the positive, and try and hang on to that little kernel of it. So I just wanted to leave uh, with uh, one other thought I had that many people wonder, you know, is the a taxi or work coming to a slowdown because of all this spread. Um, and I can safely say no. I know from NAS point of view, we're already working on the future. I've already sat in, in many multiple of Dr. Swarman's uh, virtual labs where he's able to bring people all over the world uh, at his team meetings uh, every other week. And so the work still goes on today, even though they're not in a office that, um, and it's still happening. The other question that came through was, um, what are we doing about the NAF uh, fundraising? And we've been in touch with different groups that are coming up and we're playing everything on a three to four month lookout. Some of them are gonna be virtual because that's the safest way to go. And again, everything is fluid, so it changes you know, rapidly. But for the next three to four months, I really can't see any of us getting together in any kind of a group setting, uh, unless a miracle just appears. But um, those are the right. two things that I just wanted to leave with. And I didn't know if you wanted to leave with anything, Dr. Swaman, and 
I, I agree with all of that, John, and, and uh, it's lovely to see you all. Uh, be strong, know that uh, we all care about you and each other. And I think that uh, trying to keep an even keel and hanging on to stuff that before, before this virus was important to us in our lives is still important. And it becomes even more so as we recognize the threats that are facing. So uh, just uh, hang in there for the long run. We will get through this together and we'll be stronger for it. Yeah, now um, we're gonna just turn it over to Lori Shogren for a second. Oh, I just wanted to um, may hopefully do something fun and take a picture or screenshot <laughs> of everyone, but I didn't want <laughs> um, folks to be caught off guard. I want everybody to do a big smile. So <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> Awesome. That's great. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> right. And so I want to thank everybody for coming and uh, we look forward to doing this. We're going to look also to do some more of the uh, uh, podcast with Dr. Swamins with uh, like a coffee chat with different things that arrive and we'll work out those schedules. But we wanted to thank everybody for coming and this was a fantastic time. And Take care. I'm glad everybody is well. Stay yeah. you guys and safe. And it was great seeing everybody. Good to see you, Lauren. Yeah. Okay. Good to see you. Bye. 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 Bye.